I'm Kathy Joller. And I'm Dan Schifrin. And this is The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. The Space Between examines the places between traditions, ideas, and cultural practice where creativity happens. Today we're going to look at presence and absence with Rachel Schreiber. Rachel Schreiber is a historian and media artist whose work is boldly interdisciplinary. She has a Ph.D. in history from the Johns Hopkins University and an MFA in photography and critical writing from the California Institute of the Arts. She's currently an associate professor and director of humanities and sciences at the California College of the Arts. She explores themes of gender, activism, and labor in her artwork, and her piece Sight Reading was recently commissioned by the Contemporary Jewish Museum as a part of the exhibition California Dreaming, Jewish Life in the Bay Area from the Gold Rush to the Present. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Rachel, I'm wondering if we could start with Sight Reading. Um, This is a a series of um, photographs uh, with text. The photographs are of um, contemporary places in the Bay Area, and the text talks about events that happened in the past. Um, there's kind of two things that you do that are interesting in this project. Um, the first, um, in terms of content, is that you are bringing some lost voices of California history to the present. And in terms of practice, you're bringing together uh, text and visuals in a kind of an equal way. Um, so I'm wondering, this is a question that I've asked musicians before, you know, does the melody come first or the lyrics or both? When you think about a project where you have image and text, does one come first or do they emerge in your mind together? My projects usually begin with research in the archive. And so in this case, as is often the case for me, or or maybe I should say my ideal scenario is that I, I begin by researching and I don't yet know what form that will take. A lot of my work uses either biography or portraiture, and I see them as very similar in the idea of, of um, using really specific individual stories to get at something larger. What is the job of words, and what is the job of images in your work? Like, what does one do better than the other? Words are more specific. I think they're both subjective. I'm not going to um, say that one's more correct. But in, you know, for example, in in the pieces in sight reading, in in really a pretty short number of words, you can say some very, very specific things. And I don't know, you would, I don't know that you could be as specific in an image. Um, So in terms of of the, when they're together in particular, I would resort to um, Roland Barthes and theorize in his, you know, his, invoke his theories of um, how text guides you, um, guides the viewer in terms of understanding the image. Um, So he said that text could do one of two different things. It could either anchor the image or do a, a, perform a function he called relay. In, when text anchors an image, it tells you something that's there but gives more specificity. So it says, this, this is a photograph of the Moscone Center. It was photographed on August 29, 2011, period. When it works through relay, which is a, really the strategy I think I'm interested in as an image text maker, it says something else, and it's for you to under, and you as a viewer in reading that text and looking at that image, then make a third meaning, what he literally called the third meaning, out of the combination of the two. So you're looking, and that was really, that was really what I was, I think, really going for with, it's it's a body of work, sight reading is a body of work about history, but if you don't get close enough, you'd say these are all contemporary images. So only when you get up 
close to the Moscone Center, you might the first phrase I think very purposefully says 1885, and I'm kind of pushing you to be like, why is this person talking about 1885 and showing me a picture that I know is down the street? I pass by it every day, and so you're already starting to do the stitching together. The Moscone Center, it's a conference center. It's where, you know, Macworld is held for years. It's maybe a block from the museum, and it's something that you see every day. And so, whereas some of the other, like the Petaluma Chicken Farm, for example, it's it's rural and pastoral and kind of has this built-in um, symbolism. Moscone Center has so many layers of just everyday um, um, hustle and bustle. So uh, You're talking about, in a way, like revisionizing something that you see every day and seeing it as something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that one, um, if I can also throw in, that was one of the more um, fun and um, interesting sites to research for the story for a man named Sigismund Danielevich, who stood up at a meeting in a union hall um, on the site of what where now the Moscone Center is. The union meeting was to exclude Chinese laborers from the trades, and he wanted to argue against that. And he based his arguments largely on saying that as a Jew, he felt like he knew what it meant to be part of a persecuted race, and he was booed off the stage. I photographed that site twice, and the first time I really spent hours there, and I just, I I actually was completely convinced it wasn't going to work. And I I just photograph. I mean, you know, it's like it's the Moscone Center. It's not. It's not picturesque. I mean, it, you know, I don't know. It it's was not really, Notre Dame. Yeah, it's not Notre Dame. It's not. I don't know. It was really. I just kept walking around, saying, feeling doubtful. Like, what here is going to spark? Have that spark of of connection to this story. And um, so I just shot and I shot and I shot. And then when I went home, I looked back through them and I realized that part of the story of, um, of this individual was marching down Howard Street and that there was, a, there was a shot I had looking down Howard Street and that, that, and that I started to get excited about that. And then I went online and found out that there was a date upcoming where that block would be closed off for a trade conference. And then at that moment, I thought, oh, okay, that'll be right when there's nobody in the street. and it's Or there, there are people in the street for a high-tech conference setting up. It just the contrast somehow between this, like, Silicon Valley high-tech conference and this guy in a union hall um, seemed that that's where that kind of spark, you know, came. So then it was about... Um, saying, okay, I'll be back at that site on that day. It was only one day that that would, you know, that I could make that photograph. Did you feel a sense of communion with this character when you were there? You've spent hours and hours and hours in one place. Is there a, a way in which this character kind of, you conjured him up? I can, you know, I have to, I'd be honest and say, I don't think I felt that in that case. But um, I definitely feel uh, one of the stories in the series um, I feel extremely um, connected to is Elaine Yoneda. And she's just, I mean, she, she's been a fascinating um, discovery for me. And so she was, Elaine Black Yoneda was, um, was a Jewish Russian immigrant who moved to California um, initially to Los Angeles and joined the Communist Party, and then um, and in the party met her future husband Carl Yoneda, who's a Japanese American labor activist. And um, during the war, during World War II, they both, with their young son 
Tommy, went to live at Manzanar at the internment camp. Um, her son and her husband were required to live there, and she insisted on going. Um, standing there at Manzanar, I felt I felt that kind of connection to her. I mean, not not I don't know that there's anything so much personally similar between her and my story, but it was it was very powerful to stand on this sort of square of ground and think about her having lived there. I definitely felt that kind of like cross-time connection. I'd like to probe further into the idea of uh, ghosts. Um, and one of your um, pieces called Anne in New York, you talk about um, or you uh, uh, explore the issue of Anne Frank as this kind of presence. Um, and you have pictures of, um, of New York City Um, I just want to read something quick that you wrote about it. You said, Anne in New York is a series of images that investigates the representation of Anne Frank as an American icon of the Holocaust. There's a certain irreverence to using Anne Frank's visage in anything other than a sacred context. By doing so, I attempt to wrench the viewer out of the more familiar trappings of Holocaust imagery. I was thinking about um, Philip Roth's novel, The Ghost Writer. Yeah, absolutely. One of, one of my favorites, <laughs> where this uh, this Philip Roth alter ego, Nathan Zuckerman, um, meets this girl who he assures Anne Frank, and he has this fantasy he's going to bring her home to his parents, and they're going to say, you know, are you dating someone Jewish? And he'll say, Jewish? I'm dating Anne Frank. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's maybe the best Jewish joke in fiction, like, ever, right? I, I think it is. <laughs> Um, so, uh, and, you know, just in terms of the humor, I, I hope it's okay. Anne in New York, um, it sounds like a clothing line. <laughs> so there's some element of kind of stripping away the seriousness of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Anne in New York, some stylish New York photographs. But it's really about Anne Frank in some way. And, and that's kind of a jarring um, contradiction. So I'm just, I'm wondering how you backed into that project. So, um <laughs> That's a great question. I'd love that you know that story from that Philip Roth mm. book because that was definitely um, critical for for that for the making of that work. Um, a lot of my work at that time was about the representation of the Holocaust in American culture. So it really wasn't about the Holocaust itself. It was really about how the Holocaust became um, American. Or I guess I guess what I thought what I think is interesting about Anne Frank and I think Philip Roth really gets to it is that um, we I I believe that Americans sort of think of her as American. In fact, um, in the installation of that work, when I installed those prints in the gallery um, in a couple of shows, there was also a wall piece that was um, it's a, it's a piece of it's a sentence from her diary that's actually the caption she wrote to that famous famous photograph of her and she says I usually look quite different you know and just in that sense that a child would say you look sometimes you have a picture of yourself and you don't feel like it looks like you so she just wrote under it I usually look quite different and what I did in the show was I took her um, handwriting um, I took her Dutch handwriting and re-stripped the letters together to spell that sentence in English and painted it on the wall pretty large, so it's probably like five feet across or six feet across. And the thing that's so interesting is that, so in the gallery, there's this sentence on the wall, I usually look quite different in English, but it's in handwriting, and you can sort of tell, even though it's enlarged, I think viewers make the leap that it's her handwriting, but no one ever asks she didn't write her diary in English. Like that, you know, nobody ever really even 
kind of picks up on that. So You're proving the point right. that they don't yeah. notice. Yeah. It brings me into a question about um, those two different practices of, um, of history and art. So as a historian, you want to find the exact right place. As an artist, you might be looking, let's say, for the best composition, and the two things might be at odds with one another. Um, what do you do when the two things are at odds? Or do you find that they are at odds, or do you, do you, the art is always built on top of an absolute bedrock of historical truth, and so it's not really an opposition? Well, I'm not a historian who really believes in historical truth. Ah. <laughs> now we're getting and, somewhere. And I think that photographs are essentially um, documents that lie. So truth and lying, I mean, that's, that's a really good question, but for, for someone who works with photography and history, I mean, I think that, um, I think that history is a story we tell, and, and the telling of that story is always inflected by our own subjectivity and the context of the time in which we're telling it and the methods we're using and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I think the same is true for making a photograph. So, um, I would answer you by saying I don't think they're different at all. I think they're really similar. And in that same, you know, in, that was a good example because um, because um, if I had photographed the other side of the block but hadn't told you, would it have been any less sort of real or, or powerful? You know, I mean, we can, we can conjecture about that. But... Um, I don't think like my my pulling together of the details to write a short paragraph of text has every bit as much of my own subjectivity in it as the image does. Is this a radical notion in history? No. That, well, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I wouldn't I'm far be it for me to say I'm a I'm a pioneer there. It's, you know, I think that that's a more contemporary um approach to history making and um in the same way that also my approach to um, history that's about not the famous people and not about um, not about the sort of celebrity history makers also fits into a, a pretty big shift in especially in labor history um, it, within the last twenty or thirty years that said um, too much of labor history until about um, the 80s focused on labor leaders and and sh- it shifted at that time to try to get at what was the experience of say a worker or a union activist um, so I, I'm, I'm seeing what I do as fitting into those um, those traditions and uh, and same same as in terms of an image maker and text and image the strategies I use for um, asking people to you as a viewer to put the text and image together. Those are strategies that definitely a lot of artists have used in the past, and and I feel like I'm just I'm continuing that. Right. I mean, they seem like such a natural complement, and I'm just curious, kind of as you were starting your academic career, um, did you ever feel pressured to choose? Did you feel like you had to go on one path or another, and they would never meet? Yes, absolutely. And and whenever told anybody told me I had to do that, I ran from those people. <laughs> It actually did. That did. That did happen. And in fact, um, I had I had faculty at, at times who told me I should choose either you're a writer or you're an artist. Which one are you? And so I I think I sought the places where I could do where I could do both. Um, but I but I really most I really was trained. I mean I I did a BFA in in at an art school and I did an MFA at an art school and I was really mostly 
officially an artist for, for a very long time. And the content of my work was always historical, and I always did that kind of research. And I only did... Um, I pursued the PhD after I'd been teaching in the fine arts for nearly 10 years. And I partly did there, too, for a similar reason to what you're asking, because um, I felt like a lot of times as the artist, I was treated um, as the entertainment when the serious scholars came out. Mm. And um, it happened in in a number of ways where... Um, there were a few conferences where I proposed to present my work and was told, like, well, you can hang your pictures in the lobby while people give the papers of the real research mm-hmm. um, inside. And I was said, no, I want to be in there talking, too, about, about my research. It's all research to me. So that was, a big, um, that was a big impetus. And then also another way to put it would be that um, I wanted – to be able to publish the research as equally as I exhibited the artwork, and I needed that credential to be able to do that. So, so I definitely pursued the PhD as a, as a credential to lend the seriousness to be able to say, like, I am an artist and a historian. Mm. I'm not just an artist who dabbles in history. I'm, you know, I do both. Do you have colleagues that do both as well, or are you kind of operating in your own kind of ecosystem? Yeah, no, I definitely have, um, I definitely do have colleagues. I mean, the history part may be a little bit, um, a little bit less, but um, one of the things that's really great at CCA, at California College of the Arts for me, is that I think there are a lot of artists who also have PhDs on the faculty. So the combination of being an artist and some kind of scholar um, is not totally uncommon in, in my current institution. And then also... Um, one of my colleagues, who also happens to be my partner, uh, David Gisson, is um, pretty active in, a, in, uh, in starting to formulate what he calls experimental history, which is um, he's sort of seeking out practitioner historians and practitioners who um, the form their work takes is something other than a, than a text. And, and that's true of him as well. So it's, it's part of his practice. So he's he's been really instrumental in in um, thinking about what it means to be do historical research and then put it into any some other kind of form besides a book published by an academic publisher. So your brain is not divided up. One hemisphere is not historian, no. and the other hemisphere is not artist. No, no. And I and I don't. Um, and I I very much resist. Um, the language kind of articulations that distinguish that, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting because I, I, um, I direct the humanities and sciences division of an art college. So I, all of the undergraduates at the college take all their so-called academic courses in the division that I run. And people at the college, people at the college often talk about makers distinguish between makers and non-makers and I, I just really hate that because I say that um, history is making writing is making thinking is making it's all it's really all making and maybe that's not true for everyone I I should be generous enough to, to recognize that maybe but but in my mind it's they're just not they're they're all they're all make they're all ways of making they involve creativity they involve discipline they involve work they involve tra- you know you get trained to do them um, and I, I yeah i don't i don't see them as different 
one more question. Um, so uh, Jonah Lair, the writer and science writer, um, the coda for his book, Proust was a Neuroscientist, he um, talks about the ways in which um, scientists and artists um, speak uh, different languages. And his hope, and a lot of people's hope, is that there is uh, there will be a way in the near future for them to speak the same language um, or to mix their languages in some productive way. Um, I'm just wondering about you know whether there is between history and art the same kind of um, complicated dynamic as there is between science and the humanities. As someone who directs a science right. and academic program, I'm wondering whether that issue of science also creeps its way into this conversation. Well, it it absolutely does, and we've we've done some really um, interesting program around programming around connecting science curriculum to art curriculum, and that that two cultures distinction between science and and um, art is um, definitely going out of fashion. Mm-hmm. There are definitely more and more. Um, people who who understand that there is actually a lot of connection between science and art and we're definitely um we're exploiting that for our students every every way I can think of but um we recently for example hired a full-time science instructor which is pretty unusual for an art college um but she's she's some she's an environmental scientist who really understands materiality and so she has a lot to talk about with artists and a lot of um i'd say that issues of sustainability are bringing the connection closer because our students for example art and design students today are really many of them are very committed to sustainability in their practice and so they need to understand the science um behind what they're doing and I think that um, as we have um, as I've learned more about science and scientists and what they do um, what we realize is that that our practices are actually very similar because we both I mean scientists have labs and we have studios and that 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 notion of inquiry actually has a lot in common Um, in terms of history I, I you know for me as I've as I've said for me the, the archive and the studio and the library are all places for thinking and making and creating, in my mind. So I don't see that as much different either. I think that history and art, because they're both in the humanities, maybe don't have that legacy of being thought of as distinctly. But I think that I, I definitely acknowledge that it's been the case for science and the arts, but I think that it's um, that the boundaries really dissolving. Rachel Schreiber, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy and Dan.